the old pilot's plain tales. Some more of our bombs are missing. Six turning and four burning. What a sight it must have been to see the mighty Convair B-36 Peacemaker fly. A strategic bomber with the United States Air Force, the Peacemaker ruled the skies during the 1950s and is the largest mass-produced piston-engine aircraft ever built, as well as having the largest wingspan of any combat aircraft. A vast machine, it was the first that was capable of delivering any of the United States arsenal of nuclear bombs from inside one of its four bomb bays. With a range of 10,000 miles, it was easily capable of intercontinental flight and could carry a payload of over 87,000 pounds. That's nearly 40 metric tons. With our modern view of aircraft, it wasn't so much the size of the Peacemaker that we would find remarkable, but the power plants. Along the trailing edge of the wing lay six powerful 28-cylinder Pratt & Whitney Wasp Major radial engines, all of which faced aft in the pusher configuration and were fitted with huge three-bladed propellers, 19 feet, that's nearly six metres, in diameter. Despite this, it was underpowered, so on later versions, under each wing, a pair of General Electric J47 jet engines mounted on pylons were fitted. This amazing array of engines gave the aircraft its unusual nickname, but problems with fires and failures meant it was sometimes not so subtly altered from six turning and four burning into two turning, two burning, two smoking, two joking and two unaccounted for. Checklist completed, ready to start engine set. Roger, cruise, CC, brakes are set, fire guard is standing by, start in. Right in the compartment, sir. Uh, ground is panel. This is ground. The reason for the joke was partly due to the aircraft's unusual engine configuration, which had the piston engines aiming aft as pushers. The WASP major engine was designed with the expectation that it would face forwards in a conventional tractor direction. This would have resulted in the carburetors being continually around warm air from the engines to help prevent icing. Since they were mounted the other way round with the carbs at the front of the engine, they could not so benefit and tended to ice up. This would result in an overrich mixture, which caused unburnt fuel to gather in the exhaust system and catch fire. For an aircraft of its size, it had remarkable performance, certainly the later versions with the full 10 engines. Although its operating ceiling was only 40,000 feet, 
it was regularly taken up to 49,000 feet, and when lightened for high emissions, it could cruise at 50,000 and then climb to over 55,000 and dash to the target at 360 knots. Even at these improbable altitudes, because of its deep wing thickness, it had a wide margin between its maximum and stalling speeds. This allowed it to manoeuvre hard, certainly harder than most of the early generation jet interceptors, which couldn't even get to those altitudes, let alone turn hard whilst up there. For crews, the jet engines could be shut down, and the intakes blanked with aerodynamic louvres to reduce drag. It was probably the worst of its nicknames that best suited the B-36, and the expectation of trouble certainly loomed over Bomber 075 on the 13th of February 1950. This aircraft was one of the early variants, being only propeller-driven, and was on a training mission to Alaska to test the capabilities of the machine and its payload under severe winter conditions. This included tests on the arming of the Mark IV nuclear bomb that was on board. By this time, the Mark IV bomb had been part of the U.S. military's inventory for a year or more, but the arming procedure, known as in-flight core insertion, had only been practiced on the ground. The ultimate test of the arming procedure would require the presence of an operational bomb on board. The Mark IV was essentially the same as the Fat Man bomb used in the bombing of Nagasaki, but it had been re-engineered to make it safer and simpler to produce. It employed a safety concept that kept the nuclear core stored outside of the bomb until close to the target, when the fissile material would be inserted into the bomb through a removable segment of the explosive lens assembly. In simple terms, the weapon worked like this. At the point of explosion, the nuclear material needed to rapidly become a supercritical mass, so that a chain of reaction would follow, releasing all the energy in the fissile material, either uranium or plutonium, in one massive event. The nuclear material was cast into a hollow sphere surrounded with uranium-238, which acted as a tamper, called the pit, and circled by explosives. On detonation, the TNT compressed the pit into a small dense mass, which became supercritical, releasing the enormous amount of energy that makes the weapon so feared. Without the core inside it, the bomb just becomes a very expensive and very large conventional weapon. Uh, the mission of Bomber 075 was to fly from Isleson Air Force Base near Fairbanks in Alaska on its training mission and then return to Texas whence it came. A ferry crew flew it up to Isleson on a miserable day. It was minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius, take your pick, in snow and wind. And then the operational crew took over. The icing was impossible and the engines had to remain running all the time to keep the aircraft warm. If they stopped, the oil would freeze solid. The flight home would take almost a full day 
but the aircraft had fuel for 28 hours of flight. As well as training and actual conditions, the aircraft would conduct a practice attack on the west coast of the United States. Approaching 5pm, the huge bomber took off safely, despite being an estimated 51,570 pounds, that's around 23 tonnes, over its usual maximum takeoff weight. Although this seems a remarkable error, this discrepancy wasn't considered unusual at the time, and the aircraft flew well enough. In the tower, the squadron commanding officer asked Bomber 075 how it was going. The aircraft commander, Captain Barry, replied that the inboard flaps had stuck, probably as a result of the low temperatures, but other than that there were no mechanical difficulties. With Captain Barry on that flight were 15 other crew members, which included a five-man relief crew, to give everyone a rest when needed. In addition, there was an observer, Lieutenant Colonel MacDonald, who was almost certainly the bomb captain, there to supervise the weaponeer, whose job it was to make the bomb ready by inserting the nuclear core into the centre of the bomb through a port found beneath the nose-mounted fuse device. Little is known of how the aircraft fared on the first seven hours of flight, but just south of Sitka, Alaska, the crew made contact with Bomber 083, which was in the same general area, and advised them that they were in cloudy conditions and trying to climb. By now the aircraft was estimated, after fuel burn, to have reached its maximum takeoff weight. Prior to entering cloud, all had been well, but then one of the piston engines started to surge and the flight engineer had to begin manually controlling the propellers to keep them at the desired 2,300 RPM. It was a difficult job and he thought that the props were possibly picking up ice. The radio operator on Bomber 075 asked their sister aircraft, Bomber 083, to relay a message to air traffic control that they were 80 miles northeast of Sandspit on Moresby Island, which is amongst the Queen Charlotte Islands, now known as the Haida Gwaii, and in difficulty. They were at 12,000 feet and picking up ice. This put them over the coast of British Columbia. They weren't supposed to be over Canadian territory. Uh, at around 250 miles north-northwest of Vancouver Island. A little later they added that they had lost an engine and were starting to descend. The flying conditions for Bomber 075 were dire. They were in freezing rain, sleet and snow. On board the aircraft and still in icing conditions, Captain Barry decided to try and climb out, but they could get no higher than 15,000 feet, and then came an alarming shout from the rear of the aircraft. The number one engine was on fire. The number one was shut down and the prop feathered, but only 90 seconds later, number two caught fire. That too was shut down, but the aircraft was losing altitude, which only became worse when the number five also burst into flames and had to be shut down as well, on only three engines, and still at a very heavy weight, the crippled bomber was now descending faster. 
at the weather station on Cape St. James on the southern tip of Queen Charlotte Islands, the conditions were poor, with a 500-foot ceiling and visibility of only three miles in rain, with wind from the southeast at 45 knots. Bomber 075 again contacted 083 to advise them that one engine feathered, two others losing power, we are descending. A while later they added one engine on fire, contemplating ditching in Queen Charlotte Sound between Queen Charlotte Island and Vancouver Island. Keep a careful lookout for flares or wreckage. Even with emergency power selected on the remaining three engines, they failed to increase torque pressure. Their instruments were icing up as well, and the number three engine was having additional problems. A few minutes later, the stricken bomber gave its final position and heading. 53 degrees 00 north, 129 degrees 29 west, on a heading of 030 degrees which put the aircraft just west of Princess Royal Island. They said that they had lost an engine and might have to bail out. Captain Barry flew his aircraft down the wide sea channel between the Queen Charlotte Islands and the mainland. He was trying to get his aircraft over the land so that his crew could bail out and stand a chance of surviving as parachuting into the bitterly cold ocean might well kill them before they could be rescued. But first, he had to get rid of his bomb. The code phrase broken arrow is part of the USDOD Directive 5230.16 and relates to an accidental event involving nuclear weapons, warheads or components that do not create a risk of nuclear war. This was to be the very first of what has since become a fairly long list of Broken Arrow events. As they approached the coast, the Mark IV nuclear weapon was dropped without its nuclear core, and the crew saw it explode in the air over the waters of the Hecate Strait. Then they took the weapon core and jettisoned that as well. As they crossed the coast of Princess Royal Island, the radio operator locked down his Morse key so that the signal could be tracked, and the aircraft commander ordered the crew to bail out. Hadn't we better belly land, Dutch? We'll freeze to death down there. I'm afraid we blow up first. Fire spinning over the whole wing, Colonel. AC to crew. Bail out as close together as you can. Try to join up as soon as you hit the ground. All right, here we go. The crew were descending in parachutes into a hostile environment, freezing temperatures and strong winds. It was thought that the first four to jump were just too close to the coast and they were taken by the wind out over the ocean, where they perished from exposure or drowning. In total, five crew members died. The most badly injured was the radio operator, who hung upside down in a tree until the others found him. 
They managed to get me out of the tree, but I couldn't walk because of frostbitten feet. So they made me comfortable at the foot of the tree and told me they couldn't stay with me. They had to go and find help for the others, but that they would be back for me. I lay there in that ice and snow for a day or two until I was found by a Canadian rescue team who got me to a ship. The last to abandon the aircraft was Captain Barry, who landed in a shallow pond on Ashdown Island. According to Barry, as the crew drifted down on their parachutes, the plane had circled over the island. It was assumed that it then went down and sunk somewhere in the ocean. There was an enormous effort made to find and rescue the crew, but despite all the resources used, the terrain and weather were very poor, and it took a full three days to recover those left alive, but that's a story all on its own. According to the limited but official report from the USAF, the bomber had been left on autopilot and directed on a turning course so that it would crash into the ocean. When the crew bailed out, they were only 145 miles north of Vancouver Island and a mere 350 miles from Vancouver City. Despite the largest search and rescue operation in Air Force history, the five missing crewmen, the huge bomber and its nuclear weapon were presumed lost in the depths of the Pacific Ocean and officially the nuclear material was a training dummy made of lead. Due to that information, there was no further search made for the lost B-36. However, three years later, the wreckage of the B-36 was spotted by a Canadian search plane, fairly intact on the side of Mount Colliot in British Columbia, over 200 miles north of where it was thought to have crashed. How it got there is unexplained, but it is possible that the autopilot flew it there. A USAF team of specialists moved very quickly to the site to recover what secrets it contained, and high explosives were used to destroy what they couldn't carry out. To this day, the US government has remained very tight-lipped about this event, which has, of course, given rise to theories of conspiracy, but absolutely nothing I have read conclusively changes the declared facts. The US government was very keen to ensure that the crash of one of its most advanced aircraft and the loss of a nuclear weapon, when the USSR had yet to steal enough information to build their own, wouldn't reveal anything to a potential enemy. The location was not publicised, but many locals must have known about the site. However, it was certainly hard to get to. New expeditions in 1956 and much later in 1997 were undertaken, followed by small-scale expeditions to salvage artefacts, some of which are on display in the local Barclay Valley Museum in Smithers. The site is now declared protected, but forever has a link with the first ever loss of an atomic bomb.
if you've enjoyed the story, then please take time to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>